0: Kia ora you are here with Aaron and Dale on When Lambs Aside, the podcast. Welcome back. Yes, hello everyone. Today we have Peter Thorbin, who is
1: a health scientist who did his postgrad at Auckland University and is the founder of Mess which provides education and training around addiction and mental health.
0: Yeah. We're still in this series of what if, uh, imagining what a new world could look like post-COVID-19. And we're talking today about what if we addressed addiction as a health issue, rather as a punitive legal issue. So we're gonna explore that a little bit. What I find really interesting about Pete though, and I've known him for a few years now, actually, he mentioned it's about almost over 10 years that we've known each other, and a lot of my training and development as a young youth worker, came from from him so he shaped the youth development worker i am today so thanks pete you're the man (laughs) but um what i find really interesting about him and really compelling and you'll hear a little bit about this in the interview is that he holds i guess two sides he has the academic training he knows the research the stats all of that and he holds that on one side then the other side he's got this real lived experience he has experienced, so before he became a counsellor and went down that track, he was quite involved in the gangs. He was quite a dominant predominant meth cook within Aotearoa. And so he's lived that life. He's been addicted. He's gone through that whole journey. And so he has a really unique voice in that this is his lived experience. He understands addiction on a real level, not just a theoretical one. But then on mm. the other side, he understands the science behind it. He understands how it works and what leads people into that space. And then he can talk about the data for days if you let him. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to you hearing this interview. I really enjoyed having this all with Pete. So should we get into it? Yes. yes. Let's do it. you you're listening to When Lamb's are Silent, the podcast. Today we've got an awesome guest, Peter Thorburn. Pete, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself, your mahi, and what we'll brought you into this space? Kia ora koutou, ko
2: Peter Thorben, puku Uh My name's Pete, originally hailed from a little place up north, called so acknowledge that place. So, maapiri te mauna, maapiri te hawa, nāpura is ma marae, nāta pakeha, tonu. I call Brian Thorben, puku papa, kuku Susan Denna, parangikapatu Cochrane, you mama, I call Peter Ahau. So, my name's Pete, I've known you for around about 10 years now, or somewhere around that sort of time, um, my background is 23 years lived experience. So I was an alcohol and drug addict uh, for the, for a long period of time, involved in methamphetamine manufacturing. That, but in 2005, I sort of decided I wanted to help youth. And so at that time, I, being ADHD and dyslexic, sort of struggled a little bit about moving forward. But I. Ended up jumping into MIT and, and call counsellor, then went to AUT and did some more study in addictions. Another four years at Auckland University in health sciences and my passion, paediatrics and youth health as well. And what do I do? Man, I do lots of work from developing the capacity of communities to self-heal with the likes of drive consumer direction and uh, heart. But I also train the likes of Odyssey House, uh, the Salvation Army on around about 20-odd topics, I guess, including things like alcohol and drug, mental health, CEP, suicide, trauma-informed care, motivational interviewing, cognitive behavioral therapy. So my passion, though, is really around developing the capacity of community to self-heal and moving away from the model where we rely on services to fix our whanau. So that's
0: a bit about me. Sure. Hey, thanks, Pete. So I guess in this episode, we're thinking about what if what if we transition into a health-based approach or, or system of dealing with addiction, and we're imagining, coming out of COVID-19 and this lockdown, what we could change to make our world a better space. And I guess before we get into that, though, a big part of it is around what is addiction, and, and for our listeners, I guess, to understand that, could you speak to a bit about that? Yeah, well, as you know, mate, there's
2: lots of different uh, ways of looking at addiction old school models where it's a it's a moral sort of decision and you get into it because you're you know a bad person there's the predisposition and genetic predisposition that alcohol and drugs is a disease model and all these sort of models that float around but realistically these days um, we understand it as a complex interaction between biological stuff psychological stuff social and spiritual stuff right so what we mean by that is that what drives addiction from a biological perspective of things like one in five young women meet the criteria for depression by the time they're 16 or 17 in New Zealand, one in six young men. About a third of them will use alcohol and or drugs as a way of sort of coping with that. Anxiety, a third of our partner that struggle with some form of anxiety will use alcohol and drugs as a way of coping. So ADHD, about 25 to 30% of us will have a substance use disorder by the time we're 16 or 17 years old post-traumatic stress disorder, 50 to 80% of our whanau that struggle with post-traumatic stress disorder will use alcohol and drugs as a way of trying to manage those symptoms. So when you start to think just from a biological perspective, mental health is a big driver, right? Things like brain development also. If we start using young, it impacts on our ability for our brain to develop. So, And when we talk using young, we need to acknowledge alcohol in that as well right so a man's brain effectively doesn't develop till 25 but we know if you use lots of alcohol and drug over that youth period it tends to be 35 to 40 till we see that maturation in a man's brain right and with our young woman their brains develop a lot earlier so at 19 you know but 29 to 35 if they get stuck in that world tends to be when they start to think about popping back out so this is some of the biological stuff. What we're starting to get more of a grip on is that biology can be driven by trauma as well. And if you look at Gay Gabor's sort of writing, um, he says that every addict, everyone that struggles with an addiction, has some form of trauma driving it, which changes their biology. And what we know is if there's trauma within a family that can actually go down the next four generations instantly, but up to 20-odd generations Uh, that trauma can be felt genetically in someone's body. So, you know, that's biological reasons. It doesn't factor into things like psychological stuff, you know, that we learn from our operating environment that, you know, when we see mum and dad come home and go, Jesus, uh, the virus is stuffing our business. I need a drink or I need a bucket. you know. Our kids learn from that operating environment. So, watch monkey see monkey do. And it's that classical and operant conditioning approach where we learn from our operating environment and then we get to sort of 13 and 14 and our parents aren't the biggest influence in our life. We're getting bullied at school and we're getting sort of, we're too tall, we're too short, we're too fat, we're too skinny, we've got too many pimples or whatever's going on for us. And we've learned from our operating environment that alcohol and drugs, a way of coping. So when we get to that age and we're struggling, we actually have a drink or pick up a joint we get a little bit of escape from it, and then we go, oh, that actually relieved me. So next time I've got a problem, we'll use alcohol and drugs as a way of coping again until such a time that we only know alcohol and drugs as a way of coping. We don't know how to cope, and often when we get addicts back out, that's one of the first things that we have to deal with, is the ability to cope with the complexity of the world. Right From a social perspective, we're renowned for putting high-density pokies, high-density alcohol in our poorer communities. You know, if you look at South Auckland, where I do a lot of my work, there's eight times more alcohol chops per person than anywhere else in Auckland. Alcohol up to 20 30% cheaper in South Auckland. There is six times more pokie machines in those poorer communities. So, actually, we understand that if you put alcohol and drugs into poorer communities, they'll use it right because they're trying to cope with that trauma that grief that loss and so from that social perspective alcohol is cheap it's accessible it's seen as a human right and masculinity trait you know there's a, a whole lot that comes into that at alcohol and alcohol by far is our big drug uh, in New Zealand most people will use alcohol before they use any other drug right it's just alcohol's classified as a food in New Zealand not actually a uh, a drug, yet if it was reclassified today under the current classification system, it would actually sit as a class A drug the same as methamphetamine because it kills a thousand people each year in New Zealand. Uh, 70% of our Friday and Saturday night crime is alcohol attributed. There's no medicinal benefits at all to alcohol. Seven cancers directly linked to it. But we celebrate that and then we punish someone for smoking a joint, you know, and that's our social construct, right? Is how we see these things. You know, as a health scientist, I I don't see any different to someone that can't manage food to someone that's going home managing their anxiety with a bit of weed or drinking a bottle of wine a night. To me, they're the ways that that person has found to try and manage whatever's going on for them in their life. From a spiritual perspective, and I've got to be mindful what I say in this space, because to me, spirituality has a whole lot of different meanings for a whole lot of different people. But to me, it's about hope, dreams, aspirations, connection to something other than yourself. And, you know, if you look at Johan Hardy's TED talk, which I I love, you know, the opposite of addiction is connection. And to me, that's where, in that wider or that spiritual space, it is about connection. And that connection changes your social construct, right? It changes your psychological makeup, and it changes you biologically. We know, for example, if you get a hug for longer than 20 seconds, it actually changes the way your brain operates, right? So, from a spiritual perspective, it's about hope, dreams, aspirations, and potential. And if we're going to find a way through this, we need to deal from all those biological, instead of medicating our kids for mental health issues as the first response, give them someone good to talk to. Give them an environment that's safe to thrive and give them a connection to others like themselves, you know. From a psychological perspective, good, genuine people to talk to, you know, people that they can communicate with. That aren't going to judge them and put their ideas, impose their ideas of what perfect person looks like. From a social perspective, actually, what we need to do is find community organisations that can foster, nurture, educate, and our whānau can connect with. And that's why I'm part of drive and heart. And from a spiritual perspective, not imposing our spiritual beliefs onto others, but opening up a realm of spiritual opportunities for people to connect with in some way, shape, or form. And, and for me, that's addiction in a nutshell. It's that complex. You know? Some people can say, oh, oh, I've never had an addiction to drugs, yet they're 30 stone, you know what I mean? And they're eating McDonald's each day. Or someone can say, I don't, I'm not a drug addict, but I'm spending a 1,000 a week on pokies. You know, for me, they're the same. So they need to be treated as a health
0: issue. So, so there'll be some people listening to this, and this might be the first time they've heard sort of this taken addiction, and, and the thing that's sort of the dominant narrative in their head will be, I mean, it's about choices, right? You know, like not everyone that has a hard life goes into drug addiction. So um, do, can you think of an example that'll sort of bring that home for someone around how this works and why there is so much more complexity like you've unpacked there?
2: Okay, so uh, rather than use anyone else's story, I'll use mine, right? I was undiagnosed ADHD and when I was a young person, and I'm talking six, seven, eight, ADHD, so I was high energy. But what people don't realise about ADHD kids is they're generally highly intuitive and highly empathetic. And so my nickname at that age was Coochie Bear. I was a little bit soft in the stomach, but I was a really soft, caring sort of person and if someone was hurt, I was the first person to be there, right? My mum and dad, my dad was a Northland. My mum was principal nurse at Kaikui Hospital. So I had, uh, oh, we weren't rich, uh, but we weren't poor. We had what we needed. But what happened is uh, mum and dad sort of went through care issues at the same time as I was coming into teenagehood. I got sent off to boarding school, which I didn't really want to go to. And at boarding school, what happened was basically from the day I arrived, I was the youngest in the school. So I was 12 years old when I got to Whangarei Boards High School. Uh, I was slightly podgy, I was short, so I hadn't matured, same as the 13 or 14-year-olds that were above me. I was, a, as I said, the youngest in the school. And daily at that school, I was physically and mentally abused, not just by the um, the boys, right, which used to beat me on a daily basis, but because I was ADHD, I was pained on a daily basis. They, there was some sexual abuse as well, so the sixth formers used to take me down to dormitory and strip me naked, and they'd read pornography to me, and uh, they'd wait till your penis started to get erect, and then I'd whack it with a wire coat hanger. So what I started to do was, in the breaks between dinner and homework and that, and on the weekends, instead of staying at the boarding school, I'd run away with the other boys that were getting abused as well, we started to break into cars, Uh, no one was listening to us, we weren't being heard. So we went and broke into cars to get to escape, and as a bit of a thrill, found some weed, found some drugs within the cars, and sort of one thing led to the other. All of a sudden, smoke a joint, and being ADHD, weed works opposite on me. So there was some clarity. Uh, all of a sudden, I didn't feel different. I had a form of escapism, and, and that was my introduction into that sort of world, right? But from a biological perspective, I was ADHD that there was uh, some predisposition there, right? From a psychological perspective, at 12, I couldn't go home and tell mum and dad that I was being abused at school, right? I I didn't have anyone to talk to. In fact, I never got to a counsellor until I was about 35 years of age, right? And, And so I had no one to connect with, no one to talk to. From a social perspective, my environment was completely unsafe and I didn't want to be in there. And actually, we were marched to, not given choice around which church we wanted to go to, we were marched to, the closest church and our number ones on a uh, Sunday morning and, and forced to be in that environment. And to me, what happened is one thing led to another, of course, get involved in, in that world. Everyone else sees it as a bad world, uh, that you're a bad person, started to get arrested. So, you know, things like 16 years of age, I had a few tinnies on me and some some money. The police at that time could have chosen to sort of give me a warning, but because I was a mayor's son, they wanted to take it to the full extent of the law. So they actually charged me. But By the time I got to court with 17 years of age, I got charged with cultivation for supply, possession for supply, cultivation for personal use, possession for personal use, and possession of instruments. And that was my introduction to the justice sector. And once you're in there, it took me 20 years to pop back out, you know. So that's a little bit about my story and what drove me there. Along of the whānau that I work with, it's witnessing things like domestic violence, and they don't mum and dad in a domestic violence situation. That brings on the trauma they need to escape. Uh, sexual abuse, one in three young women in New Zealand have had unwanted sexual contact by the time they're 18. One in six young men. You know, how do you deal with that when you can't talk to anyone around being sexually violated? And you, you realize you pick up a drink or a joint, and you actually get a little bit of a reprieve from it. It doesn't mean you're a bad person, it means you're a person that's been traumatized and don't have really good ways of coping with those complexities.
0: So that's where I sort of sit around it anyway. Mm, cool. Hey, thanks for sharing that that story. I think it's a really powerful one. It sort of brings into focus all that you've been talking about. Now, now, if we switch over to our current legal system and the way we're handling drugs and addiction at the moment, do you think you could unpack that for people? What, how are we approaching it right now and why isn't it working? Or is it working? Oh, mate, it's
2: not working. Not even close to working. If you look at the actual evidence, and it depends, like some of your listeners are going to be accountants and economists and things like that. You know, they'll look at it from a range of different views. Firstly, the most likely to get convicted in New Zealand initially for a drug offence is our under-25s, about a third of all low-level convictions are under-25s. And once you put them in the system, they get stuck in that system. It costs around about seventy dollars to $150,000 to put a young person through the court system or the court process, right? And then if they get incarcerated, it's another $120,000 for a 12-month period. So from an economical viewpoint, it's around about a quarter of a million dollars to incarcerate someone for a low-level drug offence, right? You can Imagine taking that $250,000 and investing it in that young person, giving them food and housing and shelter and education and an environment they can thrive, then they're not going to be recidivist offenders at 120,000 for the next 15 years of their life, right? And so from an economic perspective, it makes bloody good sense, right? Honestly, I think the way forward, and people are going to look at this and go, ah, he's crazy, but the way forward, and I don't give a is decriminalization, and when I say decriminalization of all drugs, right, what I mean by this is not legalization, and that's where people sort of get that sort of, oh no, then everyone will be out there on p fried, you know, and no, let's remove the criminal element from the addict that is smoking half a gram of pee a day, right, and when they get caught with it, Give them the opportunity of rehab, and in fact, that's in our law. You are entitled to rehabilitation. That's what the court's process is founded on. That's what the justice system. But that's not how it happens, right? And so, give them the opportunity of an effective, holistic treatment, right? You're saving all that money, and you're saving that recidivism, and deal with the trauma at that particular point in time instead of a six session counseling spurt at an organization that does a comprehensive assessment and gives you a bunch of labels and spits you out the other end not knowing how to manage it right so if we can take the money out of the justice sector and put it into really early education around mental health and addiction really effective rehabilitation then we could actually reduce our prison population by around about three quarters that's what the evidence sort of shows us overseas right When you think, 80 to 90% of our prison population currently have mental health and or addiction issues. So basically what our system is designed to do currently is to punish those people that have been through
0: trauma. That's the way I see it anyway. So there'll be some people listening that say, I mean, if we decriminalise, aren't we just condoning addiction? You know, Maybe they've had people in their life that have been addicted and they've seen the harm, they've seen the damage, and they think, you know, I don't want to even you know, I don't want to seem like we're condoning this, this is terrible and this is evil and it's, and it's hurt the people that I love or well, they've experienced that themselves. I mean, what would you say to that person? Are we condoning it if we... If you've got a loved one struggling with addiction, right, and you've been through that hell and you've
2: watched them uh, steal and cheat and, and do things beyond recognition of who they are as a person, we can turn around and chuck them in jail and punish them for it, right, and say, right, you're a criminal, you're an offender, and that's where you need to go or we can sort of look and ask the question i wonder why our family member or our whanau are hurting so much that they need to use alcohol and drug as a way of escaping right and if we get that mindset into us then we can put the intervention in and save it's around 10 to 15 years that most addicts will spend in that system before they find a way out so we know from men the average recovery once they get involved in drugs and alcohol in the justice sector, is that 35 to 40 years of age. Some later, some earlier, but 35 to 40. As a female, it's 29 to 35, right? Until they can find a way out. Yet again, some later and some earlier. So I guess what I'm saying is anyone can be susceptible to addiction. When we look at people were thinking about P, right? 20% of all addiction in New Zealand is prescription medication. And when you start to think about and oxycodone and a lot of these people that are judging people for using methamphetamine are justifying their addiction because it was given to them by a doctor you know what I mean and for me we need to sort of see that human and that's what they are is as a human that is hurting and wonder what's the best approach to help them instead of let's lock them up and worry about them when they pop out in 18 months or two years when you look at low level offending with meth I'll give you a, a real common example. You get arrested for, say, five or six grams of methamphetamine. You might have half a gram a day habit. You're selling a few grams or half a grams to pay for your habit so you can actually survive in your habit. Now, that's low-level offending, as far as I'm, I'm concerned, right? It's impacting on the lives of others, and I, I acknowledge that. But that person is doing what they need to do to survive in their trauma and their hurt the world. We often will put them in a court system it could take them 18 months to two years before they even get to get heard in court. So They sit in jail for a year or 18 months. When you're in remand on in jail, you don't get any access to rehabilitation, right? Because you haven't been convicted of a crime yet, right? You've only been... But You're sitting in jail without any intervention. And then what happens is at the end of 18 months, you go back to court, and the judge gives you six months for it, and you've spent a year in jail longer than you've actually... Needed to at $120,000 without any opportunity of rehabilitation, right? When in actual fact, if we could put that $120,000 investment into that person when they get caught, we could save the next 100, and the next 100, and the next 100, and the next 70 to 100 through that court process. We need to go hard on those that are supplying it, right? And that's the decriminalization model. We're not, we're not going soft on it. We're saying that if you manufacture it and if you're involved in the manufacture or distribution or the cleaning of money, right, which is a big one. So this is where I'm going to challenge the lawyers and accountants and small business out there, because in order to get on top of our methamphetamine problem, we need to get the people that are actually laundering the money. They're the ones that are doing more harm. The accountants, the lawyers that are setting up, shelf companies, the accountants that are watching the money, the small businesses that have been bought by Chinese manufacturing companies, so they can wash their money through these small businesses, you know, and are not being targeted at all. So we're targeting the gangs for selling it, right? We're targeting the poor people that struggle with addiction, and we're locking them up. And the ones that are actually getting away with it all are the accountants and the lawyers, and and they're profiting on it. And to me, until we get hold of them. Right? And start to concentrate the funds on that end, and start to give the little people that are hurting with addiction the opportunity of finding recovery. And we know, the the right program and the right time and the right place, if we do an effective intervention, we can get someone off methamphetamine. I've just helped the person over lockdown get off methamphetamine just through conversation. Right. So we need to sort of understand that drugs isn't run by the gangs. Right. That is distributors. The reason we've got a drug market. Is because there's so much hurt in New Zealand: high domestic violence, high mental health, high poverty, you know, housing issues. As as you're well aware, we need to understand that those people that are using are using to try and survive. The ones that are fueling the market, the ones that are watching the cash, the ones that are see it as an opportunity of enhancing their own personal wealth
0: and not using to cope trauma they've been through. Awesome. So, so I guess. Maybe, you know, listeners start to say, hey, okay, maybe there's a problem here. If we were to go to that health-based system, which you've sort of alluded to, what sort of a concrete example is if someone could picture that in their minds? So uh, Portugal's got a model that has decriminalized all
2: drugs, and, and they've seen some major transformations. They were the, one of the highest intravenous drug-using populations in the world, they're now one of the lowest. Their prison populations per capita were comparable with America, who has the highest, right? And now they have one of the last prison populations. You go into a a doctor's over there and it sort of says everyone has an addiction and that's okay. You know, uh, there's opportunities for you to get the help that you need. Here's some choices and options. Which one's going to suit you in your current environment and how can we support you to get there? While also understanding that some people won't be ready to change. So they're offering things like safe injecting packs practices and curb HIV and hepatitis and things like that. And if someone says, I'm an addict, they're not going to get punished for it, right? Whereas in New Zealand, generally, if you put your hand up in the wrong environment as an addict, you will get punished for it. It becomes a lifelong limp on your record, right? And so for me, a really good health model would look at addiction as a health issue, a complex interaction between biological stuff, psychological, social, and spiritual. So the last thing I'd want is to go a medical model, which only treated the biological reasons why people, you know, we need good people to talk to. We need good environments for people to thrive. And we need to get away from rehabs that aid on KPI. Uh, as well, I, and uh, what I mean by that is the rehab gets 50 to 100,000, depending on which one per person that goes through. Right? The average rehab currently has about a two to six percent recovery rate. So only two to six percent of people that go through rehab currently actually maintain recovery for a period of 12 months or more. And yet again, if you think about the amount of money that we're spending on them going through, we could actually take that 50 to 100,000 dollars, go actually. Let's set you up in a nice little chalet on the water with your own garden and that, and where you can actually get the support you need in a more holistic perspective. So, going away from that patch and dispatch, that churning addiction through without understanding that trauma is at the heart of it. And so, you are asked to find recovery or well being in an environment that looks like a hospital or a prison. You know, uh, to me, that's not conducive to recovery, and the figures show that. So, yes, we need to go to a health model, but it does definitely need to be holistic. It also needs to be culturally responsive. So, I
0: mean, why aren't we moving in that direction? And why haven't we reformed this already? I mean, if that is all true, you know, all those statistics, I mean, the money we're sort of pouring down the drain alongside, I guess, the human life and suffering, which is being caused as a result of our system. Why aren't we actively moving towards reframing the system we're currently working in? The challenge we have, man, is there's money in it.
2: So when you talk about our justice sector, that out of all the uh, ministries, they have the highest budget by far. And, and law and order, of course, is a national dominated sort of feature, right? A, a selling feature. And, and we've always looked to America, you know, and now in the way we should do things. But America. Well, I'm mindful what I say, right? But America has the highest prison population per capita. Since the war on drugs has started, they incarcerate more people than any other country per capita, right? Predominantly racially motivated as well. So you will find more black and Hispanics in prison in America per capita than anywhere else in the world as well. And look to them, which is the war on drugs model. But when you start to look at the Netherlands and Switzerland and others that are Uh, that are actually making the shift to a more health-orientated model, we see the money spent on Ministry of Justice decrease and on health and well-being increase, and that stops the intergenerational flow of what's going on. So, you know, we've got so much tied up in the police force and, and in judging and courts and lawyers, and it churns the dollars people would have to rethink where that money goes and how that money's spent. And of course, that's going to impact on a whole lot of prison officers. And so there's economics at play in it. But basically, I think that our law is fundamentally based on Christian values, which has some really good components of it, but it has a moral component to it as well, right? And we need to shift because to me, the fundamentals of don't kill, don't steal, you know, those sort of things are part and parcel of it. And we need that. We need law and order. But we also need to understand that addiction is a human that's suffering. And as people that have faith or believe, uh, that our whole foundation is to help others, right? You know, that, that, that to sit with the poor, to encourage. But we've got a, a capitalist model where we look at things from What am I going to get out of it? These people are going to take what's mine. you know. Until we shift to a more human model and get away from a capitalist model, we're going to get stuck. And I think that's where we're at at the moment. However, I think this lockdown is an opportunity. And as I said to others that I've spoken to over this period, what I'm already noticing is those that have been through hard times are actually thriving in this lockdown, right? Because they're used to not having money and they're used to budgeting and they're used to not getting what they want when they want. There is a whole population now of middle-class small business owners like myself that are losing money, becoming unwell mentally, are stressing around how they're going to keep their business afloat. They're going to need the help, right? And these are the ones that predominantly, I believe, have kept us in the system of, you know, the white middle to upper class of us and them, right? But now they're going through some hard times, and when you go through hard times, I believe you develop empathy, right? Because you start to see it from another person's perspective, and what we need is New Zealand to start to look at it from an empathetic
0: perspective, mm. as opposed to a capitalist Got And so if you're if you're in that, that group you're sort of mentioning that maybe in the past have really held on to that law and order and you know, this is just the way because, you know, to be fair, that's all they've ever been able to imagine because that's the dominant narrative of our society. But now they're starting to rethink that, listening to yourself, some of the other conversations we're having and their own experience they may be going through right now. And they may be thinking, how hey, what can I do? Um, you know, I'm not a frontline worker, you know, I'm not in politics. What can I do to start making that shift and supporting that work where it's happening what would you say to them
2: well there's a couple of things firstly do some research around portugal and that to uh, you know do your own education have a look at the figures have a look at the evidence out there pretty well every drug and alcohol practitioner in new zealand or anyone that's championing change around this it has a fundamental belief that this is the right way to go and the evidence is pretty strong that it is the right way to go so do some homework but I guess the first challenge for me is we're not going to decriminalise methamphetamine and heroin and and these other drugs until such time as we look at cannabis, right? And I guess for me, this year, uh, what they can do is think about how they're going to vote, you know. Many of them will be cannabis is bad, you know, Mm. and there's lots of language around it, you know. Um, To me, yet again, cannabis is smoked by about 580,000 New Zealanders per year. No one's died from it. I'm not, I'm not saying there's no harm. About 8% of the population do have some harm around it. But realistically, it is our under-25s that are getting convicted for it. We know once they've got that conviction, it makes it hard to get employment. It makes it hard to get back on track. You're in that legal system. So let's have a look at decriminalising or legalising marijuana, making sure that the government is held to account around it so that money that they are taking out of the gangs, which is, you know, predominantly uh, who holds the fund around cannabis, going into the government, that money needs to go into our youth, right? Youth education, youth mental health training, mental health 101, youth counselling and support services, because these are our generation that will come through. And what we see is when you actually legalise marijuana and put the appropriate restrictions and get accurate education, the use of cannabis in countries, Greece, right? Amongst our youth population. That's what we've seen in Canada and other places like that. So let's trial it and get the evidence with cannabis, right? And then start to shift our mindsets from there. And that that will be the first win for me if we can get effective legislation through. And I've been keeping up to date with all what the government is saying uh, around it. And they are looking at ensuring that money is going into effective rehabilitation uh, and treatment and education. The Challenge I have is if that money goes into the same organizations instead of looking at more responsive, youth responsive ways of voting health and well being. Yeah, sure.
0: hey, that's a it sounds like at least an achievable first step that most of us can at least really start thinking about and exploring as we go yep. on there later in the year. Actually, we're hoping to do a series um, leading up to the vote, so we'd love to have you on and, and unpack that a little bit more. Oh, yeah, um, yep. I guess as we close, is there any sort of last thing you'd like to leave, yeah, leave our audience? As people may be in coming at this from different spaces, some people are right with you, you know, they're working on the front line, maybe they've been exposed to that. Others yeah. are really wrestling with what you've said. It's a it's a completely different paradigm to what they've experienced and, and what they're thinking through. What what do you what would you like to leave them with as we, we end this corridor? One of the things
2: I, I sort of say to a lot of people that don't understand it is if if you, Imagine if it is your son, your daughter, your grandkids that go through a traumatic event and it may not be caused by you. It might be caused by indecent or sexual assault at a school environment or like myself being bullied in that way. And they slip up and find drugs and alcohol as a way of coping and are using that to cope with their trauma. How would you want your son, your daughter, your grandkids to be treated? And just remember that those addicts that you're judging out there on the street could very easily one day be you. And people go, oh, no, that's not the case. I would never use drugs. But I worked on a case a couple of years ago with a lady that had never, ever used drugs and alcohol in her life. What happened is she was walking along West Auckland beach and she jumped over a little um, bit of a river and slipped on a rock and broke her back. And so what happened is she went to the doctor's, She was in hospital for a while. They put her on tramadol and oxycodone and actually left her on them for around about 18 months. So you only need to be on them for around two weeks until you're dependent on them, right? Left them on there for 18 months. Then turned around and goes, oh, those drugs are addictive. You shouldn't have been on them for 18 months and took the drugs off her, right? And so she went into a full withdrawal period, went out onto the street to see if she could find some, found some that weren't the same but were the same base, took them and died, right? Now, this is a lady that has never had any drug addiction in her life until it was given to her by a doctor. So I guess what I'm saying is that we can all fall into it, right? And whether it comes from a prescription medication. So just imagine your daughter, your son, your grandkids involved in it and how would you want
0: them to? cure Hey, thanks, thanks for that, Pete. I think we'll we'll leave it on that note. That's some really good stuff for us to be thinking about. Cheers, cool. mate. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Wow, that was. I don't know about you, but that was quite a powerful episode for me. I think listening to some of the stories Pete told, especially that last story at the end, really brought it home. Yeah, it was
1: a lot of information, <laughs> mm. and a lot of things to to wrestle with to think about. But then imagine it's your son or your daughter is a very strong one. It's a very good one. Yeah. That's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Just about various people that I know who have gone through things and really starting to think about their life, why they reach that place. What if it was, you yeah, know, my son, my brother, me or myself in that situation? How would I like to be treated? Yeah, it's it's, it's powerful. Yeah,
0: and that's what it is. Eh? It's, it's reality for so many people. For me, when, I, when we have this corridor, and one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it is that I have names for those people, you know, those statistics that he talked about. I, I can see their faces. I know who they are. No. And so I get quite passionate about the corridor because these are people that are hurting. And, and, and he sort of said that, like, we have a drug market in New Zealand because we have a lot of hurting people. Well, a lot of us know those hurting people. And if you, if you put yourself in their shoes for a second and you just imagine what they're going through and what they've gone through to lead them to where they are, then it kind of changes the conversation, for me anyway. That's, that's what's done yeah. it for me.
1: Yeah, and it's also understanding that everyone's different. So while some people might pull through trauma, might pull through hard times and to be able to turn their life around, some people just
0: can't. Well, he sort of said there eh, that, like, that trauma is the big driver to addiction. And he talked about all of what we've been discussing, housing, the criminal justice system, poverty, abuse, all of that stuff. And one of the interesting points that it actually, a lot of us have some form of addiction. It's not all drug addiction, but some people fall into this track of these sort of illegal illicit drugs, but other people have other addictions in their lives. And, and yeah, my addiction, it's, it's ways that we cope, right? Like uh, if you know me, you will know that my issue is coffee. I drink way too much, <laughs> I also have a real chocolate problem. It's an issue that I actively have to work on. Um, but like for me, those are ways that I cope. They're not healthy ways. Yeah but they're ways where they I cope with stress and the things that happen in my life and have happened to me in my past. But then we judge those who've gone through horrific things and have, as a result of that, found drugs as a means of coping. There's a hypocrisy there that we don't always connect. Yeah. The thing is,
1: cause it's not always trauma. Um, I mean, I know a few people who, <laughs> I know a lot of people actually, who take drugs recreationally, I suppose, because they enjoy it. I mean, you can't always speak to people's experiences because you don't know exactly What's gone in their life? But there's a good few that I know take it just because they enjoy taking it.
0: Mm. I, I think you might say, though, that because often when you hear people say that I'm taking it recreation, recreationally, you ask them some more questions and you might discover that actually it's, oh, this is how I'm dealing with my stress. You know, it helps me unwind. Right. I have a bit of a drink at the end of the day because yeah. it helps me unwind. And I have a joint because it helps me relax so yeah that's true it's still a way of coping with stress so it might be might not be very deep trauma but it's still being used as a means of stress relief or to relax or to have you know like a good time so it's still putting something in now you could just replace that with you know i game or i you know watch netflix all night until i do yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? so there's good, yeah there, there's a lot of comparisons there and it, and it's similar things but it looks worse when it's Because obviously, the the impact is far more visible and and harmful both to society and to individuals and whānau. Right. Um, We're talking about meth and we're talking about synthetics because these are really toxic and evil drugs, right? That really cause Hmm. massive harm. But I think his point is that some people, for, you know, because of their life circumstances, these are the things that they find. And it's not everyone, but some people, this is the channel, the gateway. You know, we often talk about weed being the gateway drug. Well, um, i've heard pete in the past and I, and I agree with him is that the gateway is trauma that is the thing that starts addiction that yeah. the gateway is that's how we get into that it's not weed itself it's it's why we use it Well, well it might not even be the reason you get into it but it might be the reason you stay you know exactly what I mean? yeah yeah i'm actually really interested in getting him on to unpack a bit more and, and we talked about that at the end around the referendum coming up around like you know weed and legalization but actually explain Packing, unpacking weed, what weed is and, and how that actually impacts on our body. Because I think that understanding is really crucial. And when he's explained that in the trainings I've been to, it's made a lot of sense and it actually shows us what's happening and why some people get trapped in the cycle. And then some people are like, ah, oh, it doesn't bother me, sort of thing. But I mean, that's another conversation. Yeah, that'll be a big one. Some of the stats in there were pretty shocking. What sort of stood out to you? I
1: guess the addiction and mental health rate in prison, 80%. I know, it really gets you thinking mm. as to who we're putting in prison, why they're there, especially with our re-offending rate being at seventy percent. If the, the system's going to be there to stop offending first and then and then to prevent it from happening again, but we're not preventing it. Means we're not getting to the
0: down to the core issues and the core reasons people are offending in the first place. And I, I guess if we reflect back on the conversation we're having with Tanya last week. 80% of the prison population have addiction and mental health-related challenges. That means that we're imprisoning mentally ill and addicted individuals. It means that our system punishes people who are unwell and who actually need our support. So it kind of gives a bit of weight to our quidditch or around prisons last week. And, and is it working? And you know, what's the impact of it?
1: And I mean, those people experiencing that and those who are going through addiction and those who, are, who have experienced trauma they're not getting to deal with the issues if they're spending a lot of their time in the system because i mean 10 10 to 15 years once an addict is in the system to get out that's a
0: long time mm. that's a long time and then if we recognize that the criminal justice system is a traumatizing system in itself that causes harm rather than promotes healing and recovery you see that you're trapping people in the system that is just not working that is just You know, you take hurting and broken people, you put them in a system which is gonna continue to hurt them even more, and then you spit them back out 10 or 15 years later. I loved his practical point there just to say, hey, if economically speaking, if we invested all this money that we're putting into punishing people, and just funneled it into the first offense that they had into restorative justice, into actually giving them support into therapeutic solutions, then we would save a lot more money. I hate thinking about it economically, to be honest, because I think that our own like humanity should prompt us to change. But if we need to think about it economically, it's not working, you know, from a financial perspective. Well, something that does turn your head, right? Because hmm. what was it between 100 150,000
1: Was it to yeah, put someone right. through the system? Was yeah. it fifty <laughs> to one hundred thousand? I'm bad yeah. with numbers, bro. Yeah, <laughs> to put someone that through way. the system, <laughs> through the court system, and then about one hundred and ten thousand per twelve months of prison. That's a lot of money. Especially if, if the reoffending rate is so high, that's pretty much getting washed down the toilet.
0: Yeah, and, and his story there, like his own experience of running away from boarding school, like I know that story. I know so many young people that have lived that story. Home's not safe. They're, they're not in a safe environment. They go out with their friends. They do dumb stuff like breaking into cars and getting high. They get caught up in the justice system for that. You know, then they get bailed home to their address, which is not safe. So they're meant to be on curfew. They're meant to be there. They run away because, once again, I'm just not safe. it's not a good environment. So they're still doing the same things. They get picked up for a breach of bail, which is like, okay, you were meant to be home from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. You went out at 8 o'clock, 8 p.m. with your friends. So it's a breach of bail. Now you're back in court. You're in lockup for the weekend. You're in court again Monday and you got another bail. And then you're out again, you breach bail. It's like this ping pong thing. Then you miss a court date because you're a teenager and you can't remember when you're meant to be in court. And, you know, your charges are in Auckland court. Um, And you live in South Auckland and you forgot about that. And, you know, like, it's this cycle. And sometimes you recognise that a young person's been in the system. We we, we see young people all the time. They've been in the system. They've not re-offended, like, anything except for breaching bail. But for the last year and a half, they have just been trying to run this circle of the justice system. It just doesn't work. And instead of, and it gets in our way, as youth development workers who are trying to support our ranga to heal and to grow and to develop, when they're getting... Pull back into a system which is causing them harm. It doesn't yeah. facilitate the healing and recovery and it's wasting so much time. And, and this is the ludicrous part of it. Everyone that's working, most people working within the system, get how it doesn't work and don't, and I wanna to try to bend the rules to make things work for the young people and for people in general, but obviously the system's not created to do that. So, I mean, right. if we're all saying, hey, this doesn't work, we need to do something differently, then why don't we just do something different, you know? Well, as someone, I mean, someone working in that space, I'm not, so I have no idea. Yeah. I really have no idea myself. Yeah.
1: But for you, you know, do you find it really hard? I mean, is there a group of you that are trying
0: to trying to make change? Yeah, I mean, it's a big beast, right? And and like you said, like you, don't, yeah. if you're not in it, you don't see it. And the, and Pete sort of mentioned that the dominant narrative is still law and order. We still have this huge dominant narrative of if you do something wrong, you need to get punished. Do the crime, pay the time. And yeah, I think that's the narrative we need to unpack because people just believe that's the way it is. You know, like if you haven't seen the impact of the system on people and you haven't seen the way it's just utterly not working, if you, and if you can't imagine the person that is going through this system, then you maybe just accept the narrative you've been given. And that's almost not your fault. That was the narrative I grew up with. It's the narrative I believed most of my life until I stepped into this work and heard the overwhelming stories of suffering and harm that is being caused because of this issue. So yeah i guess it's a a journey to get out of but we need to shift the narrative
1: yeah i definitely i definitely saw your change once you started getting involved with your work and see your your mindset change your attitude change and i mean it's helped to to change me and give me thinking about more but i think it's just definitely a matter of you don't get to experience it you don't get to see it and so out of sight out of mind
0: yeah i i remember very like we I used to be the strong ass law and order person, right? Like, because yes, I believe that's the way so. I remember <laughs> us having conversations and you're like, you were trying to like temper me. I remember us being at Laidlaw actually in a lecture, and someone said something and I made some stupid comment, and you're like, you are so close-minded. Like we had those massive <laughs> right? debate. Um, and, I, and I, was, on I was going the other way, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that way, but it's yeah, just yeah. it just speaks to how narratives are so ingrained within us. And I to be honest, like from someone who comes from the Christian tradition, I sort of felt Like, even what Pete said there about this bigger narrative that does have some roots in sort of colonial Christianity that is still being played out, regardless if that's your, you know, faith anyway. It has formed the roots of our society. And this idea that there's a God who is a God of justice, and justice means punishment. And it means that if you do the wrong thing, you're going to burn in hell for eternity. Like, that narrative, which was very present in the minds of many of the men who were forming the justice system we now have, still exists in a very Deep level within Pakeha society and culture, and I think there's a real need for us to redeem that, to actually examine those narratives. And I'm looking forward to maybe doing that in some future episodes. But, but to look at actually what another narrative could be uh, around justice, around you know even theology and God.
1: Particularly go with Jesus, I mean, he, he comes in with a turn the other cheek and all that mm. kind of stuff. No eye for eye, but we still we still struggle to let go of eye. And mm. myself, I'm it's, it's very difficult for me too. Mm. As soon as I, particularly once I start thinking about heavier crimes, mm. and that kind of trickles down into mm. everything else as well.
0: Yeah. I love one of my, my favorite theologians at the moment that I'm reading is James Cone, and his claim was God, God is black. And by what he meant that is that Jesus is, he's the black man who's been crucified or lynched on the tree. He's the guy who is with those who are suffering and fighting for the liberation of those who are oppressed. And that's a powerful image. And if we start to actually associate Christ with the poor and with the oppressed, that changes how we then see, I guess, even our criminal justice system to say that actually God is not the being that is standing over people wanting to punish them and cast them to hell for eternity. God is the divine being, which is with the poor and the marginalized and working towards redemption, healing and restoration. And for me, that's a huge framework for how I engage in this space and that I see the divine in the work I do. I see the divine in my colleagues at work who are working with those who are the outcasts of society, loving them, caring for them, putting their lives on the line in order to bring this redemption and this, I guess we use the image of the kingdom of God, God's dream for humanity into this world today. Yeah, that's, I mean, we probably need a whole episode to unpack that, but yeah, yeah. But I mean, I guess that sort of brings us to the end our conversation today Dale this has been good
1: yeah it is. <laughs> feels like there's just so much more we to can touch
0: on to but yeah but I mean Pete's yeah, like for himself, to be honest we could talk to ourselves forever alright <laughs> hey thank you once again for listening to When Lambs Are Silent the podcast we just really want to thank you for joining us in these conversations if you are enjoying the conversations we're having here we really encourage you to share what we're doing go on to iTunes rate us that's how new listeners find out what we're doing give us a review if you like us, would be don't, that's cool. Just give us <laughs> feedback. Love to hear from you. And we look forward to having you back here next week. Ka-kita.
2: You've been listening
0: to Win Lambs of Silent, the podcast rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you are listening and join the conversation by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The music from this podcast is from the album Dissonance by Jess Jackson and Leon Shelley. Listen to more from these artists on Spotify.